Are you a high-performing real estate investor who's looking to further elevate your performance? If so, download our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits by joining our insider network at elevatepod.com. This guide created by yours truly has the power to put your transformation on autopilot and exponentially change your trajectory. Go get your free copy now at elevatepod.com. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chester. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I am blessed and grateful to be sitting with Kent Ritter today. Kent is a phenomenal real estate entrepreneur, investor, and educator, um, someone who is absolutely completely down to earth and also someone who's continuing to challenge himself. He's continuing to challenge the people around him. And I think he's going to challenge you today to expand and evolve because really that's the key. And um, you're going to learn so much today about how really the best of the best make assumptions, how, how to invest like a pro, whether you're passive or active in real estate, you're going to learn more about how to make the appropriate assumptions so that this beautiful vehicle of real estate can serve you. Because guess what? It, it can be a double-edged sword. In some ways, obviously, real estate is a beautiful thing. It can provide passive income. It can provide multiple streams of income. It can provide tax mitigation. It can provide wealth creation, but it can also be you know, very uh, treacherous if you don't know what you're doing. And so I think today there's a lot of education involved and there's a lot of ways that we can integrate not only the principles of success in business, but also the principles of a successful growth mindset in terms of allowing this vehicle to serve our life and allowing really our life to be a fulfilling journey, because ultimately that's what it's all about. Let's live a fulfilling life and Elevate Nation. My goodness, I'm so excited for this episode. You're going to learn so much. Elevate Podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I'm a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar. Before we dive into this episode, I want to thank you, first of all, for being here and listening, investing in your own elevation and your own learning and your own growth, your own expansion. But I also want to remind you that the best way to really get the most out of this is to pay it forward and share this with someone else. That's the fee that we ask. We don't ask you to pay one penny to listen to this episode or to watch this episode. We just ask you to help us spread the message of Elevate. Anything is possible for you. Anything is possible for any beautiful human being on this beautiful blue planet. So go ahead and share this episode with one person. Grab the link, send it in a text message, share it on social media, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I mean, my goodness, YouTube, share it wherever resonates with you. And we just want to thank you so much. If you have not done so already, we also ask that you please, please, please give us a rating, a review and follow Elevate Podcasts on wherever it is that you listen or watch podcasts. It's extremely helpful for us. It's extremely important for us to continue to grow for your feedback. So we'd love to have your your rating and review. Um, So I just want to thank you in advance for doing that. I want to thank you so much again for being here. And I want to dive in. I want to introduce you to Kent Ritter, who is on a mission to create modern, affordable housing for America's workforce 
while empowering others to take control of their financial future through real estate investing. He is the CEO of Hudson Investing and since 2019 has acquired 621 units valued at $51 million. Previously, Kent was a managing director with the multifamily private equity firm Burgeon Held Asset Management, which currently has over $1.5 billion in assets under management. Kent led a business unit focused on apartment acquisitions. Prior to his real estate career, Kent was a partner in a management consulting firm where he played a central role in growing the business to 95 employees and $30 million in revenue in five years. Without further ado, please welcome and enjoy this phenomenal conversation with Kent Ritter. Kent Ritter, how are you, my friend? Doing great, Tyler. Thanks for having me on the show, man. Man, my pleasure. I'm super excited about this. And of course, we are you know just up the road from one another, but it's great to spend time with someone like yourself, obviously, who's pushing, who's growing, who's expanding, not only within real estate, but in your personal life. Before we dive into this conversation, if you were to describe yourself in the way that the people that know you best, the people that have maybe known you the longest, they know you the deepest, what would they say about you, Kent Ritter? Man, that's a good question. What would, what would they say about me? I think they'd say that, you know, I, I think first, first and foremost, just, you know, Kent's a good, Kent's a good guy. Kent's a, a loyal guy. He, he's somebody that takes care of his friends. He, he looks out for people. He tries to bring other people up with him. Um, I, you know, I think, I think that's kind of most important. And then, and then I, I think they'd say that I'm a, uh, you know, I, I'm somebody that, like you said, is always pushing to do better, always, uh, always trying to do more. And, and I think some, somebody that, uh, like a lot of my, my closest friends, you go back to, you know, folks from high school, college, somebody that like, they can be proud of, uh, what I've been able to achieve. I mean, that's what, it's what a lot of them tell me. So, I mean, it always makes me, makes me feel good if I can be somebody that, uh, you know, can, can show them that, uh, you know, there's, you can do more out there. You don't have to just take the kind of the nine to five route and, and do the, uh, you know, the, the normal keep up with the Joneses thing. So, um, yeah, I get, I guess that if I could be a good guy and some, and somebody that's, uh, you know, achieving a lot, that's, uh, those are good things. So obviously to, to do that, you've got to not be a conformist, right? Because a lot of times, you know, especially the entrepreneurial route, the investor route and building a real estate business, can feel like you're a little bit on your own, right? In some ways it can feel a little lonely because, you know, the, the, the herd, so to speak, is not, you know, following in that path. So have yeah. you always been a bit of a, you know, nonconformist in, in certain ways, or was there a shift at, at a moment in time for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I've always been very entrepreneurial. I, I've, I've from, from the beginning, as early as I can remember, uh, I can remember wanting to be involved in business and not like when I didn't even really know what, what that meant. And then, but wanting to specifically have my own business. And, and even before I knew what that business was going to be, I just knew I wanted to own my own business. And it took me a while to get there and figure out what that was. Um, and I've had, you know, I've had a couple of different versions of that along the way, but uh, yeah, so I'd say I was always entrepreneurial, uh, but uh, you know, I, I did this, I did the normal stuff growing up. I, you know, played football in high school. I uh, kind of ran with that crowd, you know, I was in a fraternity in college, you know, was, you know, finance degree and kind of ran with those crowds. And, you know, I, I did the normal, normal college, like big 10, uh, you know, experience and all that stuff. But I just always had this, this entrepreneurial mindset. I always had this idea, like even going into my first job, which was working for another company, I was a management consultant. But the reason I went into management consulting was because I just looked at it as a good way 
to see a lot of different businesses and how they work and understand what makes businesses uh, successful and what makes others fail and get, get to see a lot of different versions of that with always an eye that I would take that experience and relate that to my own business once I figured out what my business was going to be. And so, so yeah, I think in some ways, probably a little nonconformist that I knew I always wanted to start my own business, but uh in other ways, very, very much that uh, kind of Midwestern Big Ten kid. I love that. And you mentioned a few things there. You mentioned the entrepreneurial mindset and that that was always something that you had kind of growing up. And you also mentioned your experience as a consultant in observing what made some businesses succeed and what made others fail. So I'd love to dig into both of those concepts. Could you first describe what is the entrepreneurial mindset and how does that resonate with you? Sure. Uh Man, I, I, it's just real simple. It's this idea that you don't want to work for somebody else and that you want to be your own boss. I mean, that, that was at the heart of it. At the heart of it, it was the idea that, yeah, I wanted to be my own boss, but, but this idea too, that I wanted to build something. It was always about building something. And, and, and I always saw that as kind of the, I guess, like the highest and best achievement, if you will, of you know, you know, so what you, you go climb, climb the corporate ladder in somebody else's company. You're just, you're just helping them build their dream. Right. I, I wanted to build my own dream. I wanted to, uh, I, I saw it as like the most difficult thing. And, and then I've come to just realize in life that the things that are the hardest are often the most are often the best or, or the most fulfilling. And, uh, I think early in my life, I would shy away from difficult things, and that's something that's really shifted in, in, in my mindset, um, probably around college times, was uh, just going after those difficult things. If something thing, thing seems difficult, you know, go after it. It's kind of like, what major do I choose in college? Well, the hardest one was finance. Okay, so so choose that. Okay, you know, what what's one of the most difficult careers? Like a management consulting. Okay, go do that. You know, it, like, it's just uh, kind of been, been a theme of, of where I've just realized that things, first of all, things that seem difficult are never as hard as they seem from the outside once you're on the inside, yes. right? And then, and then those things though, that, that are more difficult that, that not everyone is doing, like I said, often are the most fulfilling. And so I just try to kind of follow, remind myself that it's not going to be as bad once I get in there, uh, but also try to go after, you know, I guess it's the same as, as stepping out of your comfort zone, right. Of like looking for ways to continue to, to step out of my comfort zone. And that's kind of driven my, uh, my decisions in life and, and in my entrepreneurial career as well. But, but going back to your original question, this idea of being an entrepreneur, besides wanting to be my own, own boss and have my own schedule and time and things was this idea of, of building something great, like building a great company. I mean, having employees that could, uh, you know, could rely on me and that, that I could provide for, uh, always was, was really appealing to me. I guess it's, it's almost like kind of like this hero story, if, if you will, you know, of being able to build this thing and provide for the community and, and do all that. That, that was always what I wanted, uh, even as a little kid. Well, and you, and if you dig back into it, like it, there's a lot of clues in this. And the reason why I loved your response there and, and your perspective was that, you know, the more that I've learned is that human beings are designed to go big. And if we want to evolve and transform, and by the way, the only constant in life and in business is change, right? And so mm -hmm. the constant evolution, it's always, at, you know, it's always present, it's always relevant. And so evolving through a bit of discomfort is really the calling card that we're all called upon to step into that next version of ourselves. And as we do that, we start to live a life that, you know, rhymes a little bit with fulfillment. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. 
And you mentioned a few things there in terms of building something as well. I think there's something to be said about that clue as well. It's like when you build something, you can feel satisfaction around that. And I think we're almost Mm -hmm. designed to do that as well. So that's beautiful. And you're talking about as you kind of stepped into doing more hard things and following these clues along the way, whether it was conscious or subconscious, you got into consulting. So I'd love to touch on that just briefly in terms of what you saw early on in terms of what separated successful businesses from businesses that either failed or were just mediocre. Is there anything that comes to mind right now? Yeah, there, there are. This is something that, that for a while I, I've been meaning to sit down and like really distill, but, but especially when I, when I was in the consulting world, you know, it was, it was something that I would, I would speak to executives about as we went and, and were consulting them. Um, I mean, there's, when you see like a hundred businesses and, and you see what, what works and what doesn't, you, things do start to, trends start to stick out, right? Um, one of the biggest is you can't succeed if you're not going to delegate. I mean, we saw, uh, I saw so many examples where, you know, just too much control and, and decision-making uh, was held at the top and, and it was just choking uh, the rest of the organization uh, to be able to, uh, you know, the, the owner or the, the person, the VP, whoever it was, was just the bottleneck to, to success. So you got to be able to delegate. Uh, but to be able to delegate, you have to have, you have to have strong standard operating procedures and you have to have a clear org chart. And, and oftentimes I think those things get skipped. I mean, we were kind of talking about this just before the show, right? The need to step back and not just be in the business, but work on your business. And part of work, you're working on your business has to start with clear role delineation and uh, clear operating procedures, because only with those two things can you have clear accountability, which is what it's all about. Uh, you know, how can you hold people accountable if they don't know what their job is and they don't know what they're being held accountable to, right? And so you have to be able to measure with key performance indicators, and that's probably the next one is the ability to have defined key performance indicators uh, that you that are easily measurable. Because I've seen organizations with man, they've got a sweet dashboard with like 50 KPIs on it, but 15 of them, they they don't even know how to measure. And so it doesn't provide a ton of value. They've wasted a lot of time creating this dashboard that that really isn't even measurable. So honestly, break it down to like two or three things that really matter for each person that are easily measurable and focus on those. And don't change them. Don't change the goalpost on people. Um, And if you can do those things, you know, largely you'll, you'll be successful. I mean, those are some of the main ones that that stick out right away. That resonates with me very deeply. And I think there's a lot of uh, wisdom there and a lot of, you know, things that we should all consider in terms of how can we amplify our own delegation? How can we amplify our own clear communication, our own clear understanding of what's important? What are the Mm -hmm. key performance indicators that are actually moving things forward? So thank you for that. That's amazing. So So Go ahead. So you made, you made me think of one more that's super important. Con- context is everything. Mm. People, people, one, so one, people need to know the context around their role, meaning, you know, someone may be step five in a, st- in a 10 step chain, but if they don't understand how what they do affects both what's happening downstream from them and also what's happening upstream from them, uh, then they, they can't be effective because they don't know when, what, when they push that button, what that does. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then they, they can't make a, they can't critically think about, well, should I push the button or should I not push the button? Right. So they've got to have context, but to be effective in their role, but two people want the context about their role. They want to know how they fit into the broader 
vision and the broader world and universe because they want to feel a part of that. And if you don't, if you as the leader, as the owner, don't provide that context, I mean, nobody, nobody else is going to, and people are ultimately going to be unsatisfied. People are so much more satisfied when they understand their role uh, and how it fits into the bigger picture and the part that they play. And they're more effective in their role um, just by taking the time to explain to them. Like, I mean, I just, I had so many consulting engagements where it was like, you know, kind of assembly line type processes. And, and nobody ever took the time to explain, you know, to the person doing step one, how to affect it affected step 10 down the road. And if, when you do that and, and you just, just eat that simple, ta- that simple act can remove the variation uh, from the process. And then I guess, and then the last piece of it for really going all the way is you got to have a feedback loop back from 10 to one. Um, so you've got to, so if, if something's happening upstream, that's affecting 10, 10 got to be able to tell them what's going on so that they can make the change. So no doubt about it. And I would even go. take it a step further. If people understand how their, you know, part of the process impacts, you know, not only outcomes for the business, but also purpose beyond just the outcome. I think that there's so much value in that. And you think about motivation and intrinsic inspiration. I mean, there's so much value and you can almost institute uh, leadership within that entire process when you give context to, you know, what's the purpose behind what we're doing. So that's phenomenal. So let's, let's kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about the business that you've chosen. And obviously many of the uh, listeners have chosen similar businesses in terms of being real estate investors. And obviously it's not a hobby, right? It's a business. And so that's why we've started this conversation the way we have. And I think that's so, so valuable. So tell me, why have you chosen multifamily real estate as the vehicle for your your business. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So I've done a bunch of different things in real estate, you know, from flipping houses to I've got a, a small single and double port- portfolio here in Indy, bought houses on, on contract, you know, holding the notes, I've done private lending, all kinds of stuff. Um, but really that was all kind of figuring out where I wanted to be. Right. And, uh, you know, I landed on multifamily because multifamily really just just checked a bunch of boxes for me. I mean, one the the scalability of it. I mean, if you do the math on building out a single family portfolio, you got to buy a heck of a lot of houses to ever get to the point where you can actually be uh, financially free. And like the dirty little secret is. It's pretty much if just as easy, if not easier at times to buy a 200 unit apartment than it is to buy a duplex. Um, I mean, it really can be. And so one is just the scalability of it. Um, Two, just from multifamily versus other asset classes like industrial office, others is the simple fact that people need a place to live. And, and, and there's no, there's no other option. I mean, we've, we've proven that people don't need a place to work. They can work from their apartment, uh, but they definitely need a place to live. And when you look at the supply and demand uh, drivers in multifamily and just in residential housing in general, I mean, we are grossly undersupplied. You know, the, the demand largely by millions outweighs the supply. And just from my from my days back at school with my econ minor, I know that when uh, demand outpaces supply, econ 101 prices go up, right? And so, I mean, that I saw the long-term trends. I saw the trends related to demographics, people renting for longer, housing prices increasing, all these things telling me that there's going to be demand for a long time. It's going to outpace supply. Um, and then when, when you actually like then dig into multifamily, 
Um, and, and a lot of real estate in general, I mean, just the ideas of the ability to have cash flow, right. As part of your investment, which is really difficult to, to achieve to any meaningful, in any meaningful way to the stock market, the ability to have diversification. So I already had a pretty large stock portfolio. Um, but you know, one thing we, we really didn't talk about was in 2015, I sold a business and I didn't want to take that money and just continue to put that in the stock market. I didn't want to have all my eggs in one basket. And so I was looking for a place to diversify. I wanted something that was non-correlated to the stock market, meaning when the stock market goes down, it also does not go down. Um, and then, you know, you think about the appreciation, which is the returns on my investments have, have been anywhere from, from gosh, probably two and a half to five X uh, annually, you know, over what I would historically achieve in the stock market. And then last thing, the tax savings, you know, and just the ability to, to have tax advantaged investments. And so for, for all those reasons, uh, fell in love with real estate. And then really just became a deal junkie. Just love, love the chase and the hunt for, for the next property. I love the feeling of feeling like you found that diamond in the rough and you can see the vision for it. And maybe you found something that, that other people don't see. Um, I mean, that's just, uh, it, it's thrilling. I think it goes back to some competitive nature, you know, it fill, fills that need I'm not getting from sports. Maybe, maybe these days now I'm in my mid thirties, but uh, yeah, it just, it, it's just an adrenaline rush. And it's a lot of fun. I love that. So talk to me about what is, you know, investing like a pro, if you had to, I know that this is something that you're passionate about is, you know, obviously yeah. having an understanding of the drivers, right. And yep. understanding from a high level, why this thesis is something that you want to go all in on and enjoy that drive and really go after to be competitive and challenge yourself on a daily basis. But when it comes down to it, what is investing like a pro mean to you? Yeah. So so, so my tagline for my podcast is, is passively invest like a pro, right? And the idea there is that, and this is what I try to preach all the time, is that even as a passive investor, because I started out passively investing with others. I mean, that was one of the ways I started out in the multifamily and into syndications. I did that for like four years before I did my first deal on my own. But the idea is that even as a passive investor, you have to continue to educate yourself. You have to understand the investments because you have to still be able to, to make a good decision on your investment. I mean, otherwise you're just going to get thrown into something and not know what you're doing and, and potentially you know, lose your money. And that happens to people, unfortunately. So the idea is that I think passive is a misnomer. You still have to educate yourself. You still have to learn. And that's what I try to do on the show is try to bring people on, bring the pros on so that people can learn from them and understand you know, how do you vet a sponsor? How do you analyze a market? What do you need to look for in a submarket? How, how do you analyze a property? And oh, by the way, only after you do those first three, should you ever look at the property and, 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 and get through that process and do it in the right way. And so I, I think it's just, you know, with real estate investing with, and really with any investing, but, but there's just this, this idea, I think, especially in real estate, that you need to continue to educate yourself and, and you need to really understand the nuances of the investments that you're making and not just, you know, throw your 50, hundred grand at people and, and hope that it sticks. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the constant and never ending education, um, you know, not only as an investor, but also the constant and never ending improvement 
is just so important in terms of how we're developing our own skills, our own attributes, how we're understanding more about our own blind spots and perhaps surrounding ourselves with others who can help us continue to evolve and we can help them as well. Yeah. So talk to me, you know, when you think about education, obviously you're providing a platform that educates others so that they can learn more about how investing like a pro really is and how they can continue to evolve and educate themselves. But how are you educating yourself right now? Is it, you know, obviously, Obviously, you're engaging in these type of conversations on a continual basis. I'm sure you're reading publications, yeah. you're asking other people. I'm sure you surround yourself with other mentors and so forth. But how are you educating yourself right now? Yeah, I, I mean, all of those things. You know, my my the progression of my education really started with like podcasts and, and books. And that was when, it, when I first got started. And then it then it went from there to conferences. And it was, you know, I was attending. I got 10, 12 conferences a year from, from like 17, 18, 19. Um, and, and just in doing that, surrounding myself and building my network out. Right. And then I, I, I have a couple of paid formal mentors. I have two, and then I have several, actually three, then I have several, uh, I have like two real estate mentors and a mindset mentor. Uh, and then I have several un, unpaid mentors, uh, which are just people that are farther down the path that I want to be on. And I think I've recognized that, uh, you know, I've got the ambition and, and I can bring some value to them. And we've just developed, uh, these, uh, symbiotic relationships and yeah. And then just continuing and beyond like the, just the mentors, then just surrounding myself with, you know, I mean, folks like yourself and, and other syndicators, I mean, I, I talk to other syndicators all the time and just trade notes, you know, what are you doing? What are you seeing? You know, what's different? Um, you know, what are you doing differently? And uh, what do you forecast what's happening? So talking to them, I talk to, um, man, I just had, I mean, I just had a call with my insurance broker. We had like a two hour call the other day where I just wanted to go through, like, there's so much in insurance that I didn't understand. Like a co-insurance in uh, commercial insurance is completely different than a co-insurance in health insurance. And I bet most people don't know that. And a co-insurance in health insurance, good. Commercial insurance, usually bad, means you don't have all the coverage you really think you have. So just things like that. Like I have another call set up with them to go through just contract language. Um, and so I've, start, I'm start, I've gotten to the point where I'm starting to really like niche down into the things that like really matter, like legal and spending time with the attorneys and insurance and spending time uh, with those guys and, you know, in these places and then like construction as well, like really wanting to understand the construction process. Uh, I'm starting a, a couple of developments. It's my first time going into development. So, so I've hired someone as a consultant who's been in development for 20 years to help me through the process. And so I'm learning a ton from her uh, as we go through, but you know, like uh, hydrology studies and, and topographic surveys and all this stuff that I didn't know about a couple months ago. Uh, you don't have to know about those things when you're acquiring buildings that already exist, but when you're going to build new buildings, you got to learn. And so in many different ways, uh, surrounding myself, I guess now you make me think about it with like these people with these niche skills that are really deep in these areas and just trying to learn something from each other. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, and you know how much I love real estate and how it can be a vehicle towards creating any outcome that you want in your life, which is really why we created CF Capital, a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety for our investors, for our partners, and for the people that we serve. 
Our team leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors like you with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. Our philosophy is that we can elevate communities together through this process. And I want to invite you to go check out cfcapllc.com because we have a free ebook that's called The Bottom Line, The 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. And I want to tell you that this is a value-packed ebook. So I want to, want to invite you to go check that out right now at cfcapllc.com. I think you're going to get a ton of value just from reading this, whether you apply it to your own business or whether you educate yourself further on what it would look like if you invested with CF Capital. So go check that out at cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com and enjoy the rest of the show. I'll tell you what, man, it, it that really resonates with me because every time I learn something new, especially in real estate, I realize how much I don't know. And like yeah. when I spend time with our attorneys or our insurance broker, like you just mentioned, I mean, I've, my mind has been overwhelmed with things that I've learned about, you know, not only the current volatility in the insurance market, but just mm-hmm. all the different moving parts in terms of how our, you know, policies are, are quoted or how we structure sort of binding policies. And I, I just think that's so valuable. And I think about, you know, rich dad, poor dad, as an example, you know, he mentioned his poor dad was learning things, you know, in school or from a book or, you know, from someone who maybe has never done what he wants to do. But what you're describing is surrounding yourself with people who are actually doing this, who are actually supporting others in achieving their goals, whether it's from a legal perspective or all of these other different vantage points. And I think about it too, you mentioned, um, you know, sharing just conversations with other people, other investors, other syndicators, I almost, the, the, the words that came to mind for me was, this is an open book test. You know, it's not, it's not like you have to remember everything mm-hmm. and you better be able to do it all on your own because it's so great that we can all share experiences. We can all share failures. We can all share triumphs. We can share notes to say, Hey, here's what's yeah. working in this market. Here's what's, even if we're operating in the same market, the abundance mindset is so relevant. And so yeah. with that said, with this being an open book test, let's, let's dive into that a little bit. Let's talk about some <laughs> sure. of your perspective so that the listeners here can, can take their investing to the next level. So let's talk about one of the things that I think is really valuable or, or really insightful from your perspective is effectively evaluating deals or opportunities, right? I'm sure what you guys are doing more so than anything is looking at deals and probably saying no to, to a very high degree. Obviously yeah. you and I were talking before the show today, you're in the midst of closing two deals, I'm sure many did not pass the stress test to get to this point. So talk to us a little bit about how you evaluate deals. You obviously have your target markets, but when you when a new deal crosses your desk, walk us through the process. Yeah, sure. So um, you're exactly right. So so I used to like, I used to feel the rule of thumb, which I heard from others and then, then kind of lived in my own life was like, you have to look at a hundred deals to maybe put an offer in on 10 and, and win one right now. I feel like it's more like 120 or maybe like 150 deals uh, as prices have just continued to, to move upward. Um, and, and because of that, you have to be really efficient. I, I think that like a lot of beginners I talk to are like, well, how, you know, they're always amazed. when I tell them like how many LOIs we're putting out in, in a week. Cause they'll be like, Oh, I, I put an LOI out like last week. I'm kind of waiting to hear. I might put another one out. 
like that's not how you play this game. It's it's really a volume game at the end of the day, and, and you have to you have to be evaluating hundreds of deals to find those few that are going to make sense for you. And so the way you do that is I call it like like the Tinder swipe at the beginning. So <laughs> you know you're either you either like it or you don't. So I go through, you know. So we'll go through the the I'll kind of, I'll meet with my underwriter. Um, and we'll go through and there's criteria that we have now defined where it's just certain markets we don't want to be in, um, certain. So, so first of all, it's like, is it a city that we want to be in or not? Right. So that's, that's real easy. Uh, then is it a vintage that, that we'd like, like, I don't buy anything older, older than 1970. Don't like to really buy anything older than 1980, but if it's seventies, I'll look at it if it's a special situation. Um, and, and then we don't buy a or D classes. So in, in, having those criteria, it's really easy to say yes, no to deals. Right. And then it kind of goes, goes to the next step. Okay. But fits those steps. If it's a market we want to be in, it's, it's the asset class we like, it's age we like, well, is it in the neighborhood of that market we, we want to be in, you know, and that's where we, we actually move into doing some analysis and we, we start with demographic analysis. So, okay, what's the median income in the area? What's the crime? Um, how close is it to an interstate? What's, what are the schools like? Uh, what's the retail like in the area? Uh, and we can do that. I mean, in a matter of like 10 minutes and, and I can understand all those things. And then that's the next thing. Okay. Nope. Yes. Right. Move on to the next level. And then, and then it, then, and only then do we actually like open up the deal materials and it's like, okay, now let's get in the rent roll and let's get into T12. And then the, the way that I, I've paced it out is there's a couple levels even through that to kind of say, you know, again, yes, no, yes, no. So we're being very efficient because I don't want my underwriter who does the first pass on everything, wasting time on a deal that, that was dead from the start. Right. And have to go through, because it takes a few hours to fill out an underwriting model. So I've been very mindful about building these kind of breaks in the process to where there's these decision points that need to happen to where the deal is going to continue to move forward or not. So if it goes, if it passes the test at that point, you know, you go through the underwriting process, I'm sure you've got certain metrics that you've got to hit, uh, you know, for mm -hmm. a deal to, to make sense. And obviously you, you have the expectation that upon touring the asset, you're going to need to nip and tuck some, some, you know, expectations or, or, um, you know, assumptions and so forth. And I would imagine from there, it's about touring the asset. It's about having a conversation with the brokerage team or with the seller to understand motivation and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I'm making some assumptions there, but is there any part of the process that I'm missing? No, that that's right. I mean, it, it comes down to, you know, can we, so the way I look at it is I, I don't care so much about going in cap rate uh, because, you know, the cap rate could be a three cap, but if you can raise rent 350 bucks, as soon as you take over, it doesn't really matter. I care way, I care way more about the, the exit cap uh, and, and even beyond the exit cap, what is a realistic exit price per door? Like your, your model can tell you whatever you want, but if it's telling you, you got to sell something for 170 a door when nothing in the, in the market's ever sold over like 120, uh, that's probably not going to happen. And so that's where you got to start to bring reality and start to cut those things down. Right. Um, so, but in, in making all these assumptions, right. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I look for, can, can we hit a 15, IRR over a five-year hold. And that's like my baseline. If I can't do that, I don't even want to look at the deal because I know it's not going to be very attractive for my investors. Um, at the end of the day, it's, can I hit the returns that I know 
are attractive to my investors. And if I can do that um, with reasonable assumptions, then I feel, I feel good about the deal. And then when we, when we go to tour the deal, it's more like, okay, just make sure, like, make sure if they say all the roofs were done, like there's not shingles falling off, you know, make right. sure like validating what we've been told. Uh, but, but I don't think it's, I don't getting on site. Well, okay. I take that back. It's how ha- it's happened one time we were looking at a deal and, uh, and you know, it turned out that it was uh, they had crawl spaces. We didn't know they had crawl spaces, and, and the subfloors were like walking on a trampoline. Uh, but but most of the time, by the time we're, we've gotten to that point, like unless something big happens like that, like we're already very comfortable with the deal. We've already put a lot of cash cushions into the reserves, so we reserve for very specific line items of what we know. But then we also just put big cash cushions just in there for other stuff, right? Whether it's a 10% contingency on the renovations, whether it's working capital reserves, whether it's just reserves for items that we think might happen. So if I'm gonna acquire a property where the roof's 25 years old, I'm gonna put a roof reserve in there. We may not ever use it, but if we need it, we've got the money set aside. Um, And so we do all that. And knowing that and going in, if, if we're still competitive in the deal, I know, I know, and, and I, I really try to communicate this to the seller as well, that we shouldn't have to retrade on this property because we've already accounted for everything and we put extra cash cushions in for what we find going through that process. And, and that typically makes us a you know, I think a more attractive buyer than someone who who is coming in razor thin and and going to try to you know change the price on them once they get on a contract and get into the process. So, so yeah, so we, we do as much as we can up front. I think we've got a pretty defined process. I'd say the thing that we're struggling with, which was when I, when I talk to a lot of other syndicators right now, they're struggling with as well, is just adjusting kind of historic expectations to what's happening into the market right now, where, okay, you, you may historically underwrite for 3% rent growth. Well, every market almost in the country is beating that right now. I mean, Indianapolis, we're seeing unprecedented growth. We're, we're seeing like 9% year over year rent growth this year. You have other markets like Las Vegas, have seen like 20% year over year rent growth this year. So, so are you going to win any deals underwriting the historic 3%? Probably not. And so you have to start, I mean, really where I'm spending a lot of my time is, okay, how, how aggressive do we feel we can get? Because I'd say I'm relatively conservative. I know everybody says that, but, but really have been historically. But how, how aggressive can we get? How comfortable, you know, do we think rent's going to rise 4 or 5%, you know, for how long? Um, and therefore, how, how much are we willing to pay for the property? And, and I think it's that, ba- that balance is what's going on right now for a lot of people as, as rent has increased and prices have increased so much. Yeah, I think that's really well said. It's, it's definitely challenging to predict you know, where the market's going to be in five years. I mean, you just mentioned in terms of cap rates, in terms of rent growth, in terms of price per unit. I mean, there's so many different things that are being sort of uh, or evolving in the current environment and that perhaps could continue to evolve or, you know, in the next year or two, you know, we could be experiencing vastly different set of circumstances, but I think it's valuable to think about um, probabilities. I think it's valuable to consider certain scenarios and how do you mitigate that risk? How do you uh, cap that downside in, in, in the event of certain assumptions not playing out? But I think yeah. ultimately, you know, this conversation is very valuable for active investors or passive investors, because you mentioned it earlier, it may be a misner- misnomer to to really kind of, uh, you know, categorize passive investing, because I think at any moment where you're committing capital to an opportunity, whether it's with a company like yours, Kent, or, you know, a company like ours, 
you know, you've got to understand, well, what are, what are the assumptions at play here? And what, what are we assuming the future marketplace to look like? Because ultimately you or I, we can make a 15% IRR, you know, work on any spreadsheet, no matter what, it's just a matter of, is that realistic? You know, is there anything else? A hundred percent. Yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm really glad you made that point is that it's all about the assumptions, you know, it's those key assumptions. It's, you know, and, you know, and, and a lot of mo- like, yes, yeah, so it's about that. And then one thing to look at it, just as I just had this thought in a lot of models, the exit cap rate is a function of whatever the going in cap rate is. Right. right. And so you, you set it to expand by, by, you know, whatever, 10 basis points a year. And, and what people don't realize is like in a model that's built like that, the lower the going in cap rate, actually the be- the higher the returns are going to be, right? And so you actually, as, as, as you add, as you add in uh, expenses and things, as you decrease that in the line on the front end, it actually increases your returns on the back end. And I don't think, I think people miss that in that you need, you need to make sure that, you know, in, in all ways, your, your assumptions are valid and that you are, especially, I mean, the biggest mover is going to be your exit cap rate, right? That's the thing that's going to change uh, your, your returns. I think, I think they'll have the largest swings with, with the smallest little tweaks. And so I think as an investor looking at, okay, what exit cap rate are they expecting? What per unit price are they expecting to sell for? Right. You know, how much are they expecting that rent's going to grow? What's the renovate? What bump are they going to get on renovations? What are they expecting? And does that make sense with their rent growth? Their their like natural rent growth expectation, right? Like, are they capturing all that rent growth on that bump, or is there still some left to be had naturally over time? And expense uh, expense growth expectations as well. But people are usually more tempered there, I feel, than in rent growth. But I mean, those are the big things. And then I guess lo- loan assumptions, right? Interest rate, but interest rates are pretty low uh, right now. And I don't think there's a lot of risk of those spiking in the near term, but yeah, just looking at those assumptions and really asking yourself, and that's why the education is so important is because you have to have context to be able to say, okay, in Nashville is 5% rent growth possible or is it not? Is it reasonable? And if you don't have that context as an investor, uh, you're not going to be able to, to make that decision. Exactly. And, and how do national politics, um, international geopolitical moves and economics and you know, interest rate risk and all these different things that you mentioned. I mean, like what type of context do you have from a very big picture as well as how mm-hmm. does that impact this particular submarket? How does this impact our occupants today and occupants tomorrow? I think there's, there's so many different factors to realize ultimately over time, you know, you integrate this sort of this context into making gut decisions and making decisions mm-hmm. based on your intuition and understanding that of course you can never predict the future 100% like the cap rate debate. I, I call it the age old debate. You know, it's like we, yeah. you almost, you put your finger in the air and you feel which way the, the wind is moving to say, what's our exit cap rate, you know, because we don't know, but at the end of the day, you have to make probability assumptions. So this is super yeah. valuable. Go ahead. Do you, you have something to add to that? Well, I was just going to say, I think as an investor, you have to understand what the worst case scenario is and you have to be comfortable. And you have to be comfortable with that. Yes. And, and okay. Maybe the worst, worst case would be you lose all your money. Right. But, but outside of that, I would, I would say like a reasonable worst case scenario would be like, okay, maybe my most likely, cause that's what I would underwrite to would be, would be that 15 IRR, but in, in a worst case scenario where maybe occupancy drops 20% and we can't grow rents and things. And maybe it's a, five or 6% return. Right. But 
But context in that environment, we're probably in a recession. The stock market's probably gone negative, right? So in that environment, is a five or six percent return that bad? No, you're feeling pretty good about that, right? If your stock portfolio is heading heading into the red. And so I think as an investor, if, if you think about, you know, it's easy to focus on the big shiny thing over here, and that's usually the annualized return people put out because it's higher than your IRR. Um, but also think about the downside and think about, okay, like what's worst case scenario based on their assumptions? What's their break-even occupancy, right? Um, and and what, is, what does this deal look like if they don't raise rents, if they can't raise rents? And, and I think if you look at those things and say, okay, I'm still comfortable with that return uh, relative to the environment we'd likely be in, then that's still a deal uh, that you could be comfortable doing. Such a valuable way to look at it. And, and what a great way to explain that and make it easy to understand. Kent, what role does mindset play for you in your not only entrepreneurial success, but investing success as well? Oh, mindset's everything. Mindset's everything. My, I work really hard on my mindset. Uh, you know, I spend a lot of time and, and you have to spend a lot of time. It's something that you're constantly curating. Uh, I meditate every day, just did a little five minute meditation before this podcast. I try to do one before every podcast, uh, because I've got so like, because before this podcast, I was on like five straight calls <laughs> with sur surveyors and title companies and everything else. You know, you got so much going around in there. You got to you got to bring it down and settle. And so, I mean, the meditation is huge. Uh, I've recently re-picked up uh, yoga, which has been fantastic because it's like physical exercise plus meditation built in. Um, but I, but that goes a long way to mindset. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think just surrounding yourself with people that have, that have not necessarily a positive mindset, I mean, positivity is great, but, but you have to also be realistic, right? But, but just people that are, um, Tyler, you probably have a better word for this uh, than I do, but just people that are able to, that are constantly wanting to expand and grow, right? Mm -hmm. Versus, you know, I- Growth like, mindset. Yeah, growth mindset. Because I've got people that are, um, you know, that I've been close with for years maybe, but we, we just don't really jive anymore because we've got kind of a victim mentality. You know, whenever mm -hmm. we meet up, it's all oh, my boss is doing this or this is happening to me and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if you sur like you surround yourself with those people I and mean, you start to think like that. And so I think that um, surrounding yourself with, with people that have the mindset that you want to have, I think goes a long way with being able to, to achieve that mindset. And in some ways it can be a fake it till you make it type <laughs> thing. You know, you act that way and all of a sudden you are that way and, and, it, and it does work. And so, but I think mindset is, is critical. You got to believe in yourself. And I think it goes back to what I said earlier about the idea of changing my mindset to actually you know, I, I used to shy away from the difficult and say, no, I want to you know, stay over here in my, my comfy little box. Um, and, and just that shift to, to now, Ooh, this feels kind of uncomfortable. Well, maybe I should pursue that. Maybe I need to go after that. Right. Like, Oh, you've never done a development before. Well, let's build 150 units. Like let's, <laughs> let's go, you know, let's, let's try that out. Uh, cause you're going to learn a lot along the way. And, and so, yeah, I think without the right mindset, you wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to make those leaps. Yeah. It just, it integrates in everything and all of our decision-making, all of our behavior, whether it's conscious or subconscious. And that's why I just thought it was such a, you know, important question to ask you because, you know, earlier part of the conversation in many ways was a very sophisticated way to understand and integrate many different moving parts in terms of assumptions, in terms of, you know, moving micro and macroeconomics and all of these different things. But if we don't have the appropriate mindset that says, Hey, if I mm -hmm. try, I'm either going to win or I'm going to learn 
then we may not ever take action. And this yeah. is not easy, but guess what? Easy may not be the path that we should be taking. You know, maybe hard yeah. is the path that can allow us to expand. And there's so much more beauty on that path and on that journey as well. But Kent, man, this has been an awesome conversation. Yeah. I appreciate you so much. And I want to transition into our rapid fire section. We call it the rare air questionnaire. It's all about being uncommon, right? It's not common to choose the hard path. It's not common to choose challenge and, and to really focus on mindset and prioritize how you're thinking and how you're behaving, but also prioritize your learning and your education. So this conversation mm -hmm. has been phenomenal. It's been fantastic. I want to ask you a few additional questions before we wrap today. Ken, if you were to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why? Oh yeah. Good question. I mean, I think you learn, books are so important. You guys have to be reading. If you're not reading, you got to start. And, and even if you're just reading five minutes a day, like that's good enough. It's better than nothing. You don't have to sit down and think you're going to read for four hours. I got three kids, so I, I never do four hours of anything all at, all at once. But <laughs> if you can just read a little bit, make sure you're doing it. Uh, one I actually just happen to have right here as I'm, I'm rereading it for the umpteenth time is Think and Grow Rich. Um, that's like the, the old, it's the OG of mindset, right? Like it all started kind of there. And then if you, if you, if you read that book and then you hear what a lot of the guys that talk about today are saying, like it, it came from that book. And so I think that's critical. Another one that's a little more, more recent is a book by a guy named Adam Grant called Think Again. And that book just really, I just really read that at the right time because we were just talking about assumptions, right? And that book is all about challenging your assumptions and changing your beliefs based on learning new information and how, you know, we're, we're, we're taking in so much information every day and we constantly have to be evolving our belief systems and our assumptions based on that new information. There, there's an awesome quote in it by uh, Ray Dalio, where it's like, it's like, if you, if you can't look back um, a year from now and say, uh, wow, I was really stupid last year, then you, you haven't learned very much, you know? <laughs> and so I really, I really like that. It's like, yeah, you should be learning so much all the time, but, but well, with that learning, don't be like your, your being is not tied to your beliefs. Your worth is not tied to your beliefs. Your beliefs should change as you have new information. I just thought that was a really simple, but like novel concept. And, and as we've been talking so much about assumptions and how you have to change, I've really kind of looked back to that book as, as a driver. That's awesome. We'll put links in the show notes to both of those books. And, you know, it actually makes me think, I'm sure you feel the same way, Kent, with doing the podcast. I, if I listen to an episode that I've done six, six months ago or a year ago, it's like, I kind of cringe a little bit, um, but probably <laughs> yeah. that's a good thing, you know, in many ways, right. You know, we have yes. new information and we can expand and evolve. And so that's phenomenal. Thank you for that share. And by the way, I'll just mention this as well, because you mentioned Think and Grow Rich. I mean, one of the quotes that just continues to resonate with me from Napoleon Hill's work there is what the mind can conceive and believe it can achieve. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, if you can understand that and integrate that into your being, it's amazing what can happen in your life. So I just had to, had to mention that. So Ken, yeah. aside from our discussion today, what's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis? Man, I, I just, I think it's got to go back to uh, just my kids and spending my time with my kids. I mean, that, this is my favorite thing that I do. I mean, and they're, they're why I do what I do. They're one of the main reasons that I got into real estate and got off the road as a consultant was to be able to have that time with them and have the freedom to be with them. So they just, they recharge. I mean, sometimes they drain my batteries, but they always re recharge my soul, I guess you could say. And so 
Uh, and man, if you just look at things the way that kids look at things, you're always amazed and, and you often realize like the stuff you're worried about just isn't that important. Man, that's awesome. Thank you for putting that in perspective. And, and I can imagine you're a phenomenal father. Kent, uh, what's the biggest way that you elevate others around you? Man, a couple of ways. So, so one is, you know, I really look at what I do as offering an investment opportunity to folks that traditionally wouldn't have the ability to get the returns uh, that they're able to get with my investments. And, and I don't really mean that as a sales pitch, but, but I, it really is part of my mission with the company is to like real estate investing for me started out very personal. It was about, you know, how can I build my wealth? And as I learned about syndication and saw the power there and, and had the impact on my own life of being in these investments, I realized that you know, I could, I could bring my entire community up, right? I, I can. And so I have friends, family, old coworkers, all kinds of people now that are in these deals and just so happy about the returns they're getting. And I mean, I, one of my favorite stories is like, I, I've got a guy who's uh, a friend of my father-in-law and before investing in my deals, he had his money sitting in CDs and in a bank account. Cause he's super conservative. And he's like, he's looking at the returns. He's like, well, okay, I'm making 0.1% over here. So if you can do better than that. Like you can have my money all day, but it's just, it's just been it. And and he's retiring this year. And so I think it's been life-changing in ways for him to be able to um, just have that opportunity. So I think that, I think that's one way. uh, And it really is part of the mission with the company. And then the other is just, I spend a lot of time talking to other people. Uh, I don't have like a formal coaching program or anything, but I just, I spend a lot of time with newer investors, answer a lot of people's questions. I try to make myself available because I had so many people step in at the right time and give me great advice. Um, and I, I just, I'm trying to re- return the favor. So I'm trying to elevate the folks around me to, to learn from what I've learned. Kent, man, I want to acknowledge you for your authenticity, your challenge, your, your continued commitment to challenging yourself and other people to face discomfort, to learn more, to grow, to take, you know, risks, to take opportunities and grab the bull by the horns, man. There's so much more that we could have really gone down in terms of this conversation. I'll plant the seed for part two, because there's really so it. much more that, that uh, I'm sure that we'll dive through at that point in time. But Kent, I know that uh, the listeners can find you at kentritter.com. Of course, they can also find you on LinkedIn. They can find you on Facebook. They can find your podcast, Ritter on real estate, wherever podcasts mm-hmm. are, are heard or, or watched. Um, they can find you on Instagram, Ritter on real estate. Um, is there anywhere else that I missed where the listeners can find you? No, I, I think hopefully that's enough places that they, <laughs> they, they, they could reach out to me if they're interested. Uh, and please do. I, I'm very easy. Uh, to find. And I enjoy talking about real estate. So, you know, it, it's definitely not a burden. It's my favorite thing to do. It's why I do this podcast and why I do my own podcast. Right. Um, so yeah, please, no, please reach out, man. I think you hit them all. Love it. And of course, if you visit his website, um, there's also a freebie there on the website, the four That's things right. to look out for in a syndicator before you invest. So this is just another part of stacking on education. So I think that's super valuable. Kent, is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you like to share with Elevate Nation today? Yeah, man. If, now they have the opportunity. Uh, my One of my favorite, I guess, uh, doses of wisdom for folks is you know, it's not about being perfect. Like if I, if my podcast, if I was going to wait to start my podcast until it was perfect, I'd still be waiting. 
today. Um, it's not about being perfect. It's about getting started and it's about improving through iteration. Just mean little improvements all the time. Like, like I used to tell people that reported to me when, when I was a consultant was, look, I don't, I don't expect you to be perfect, but I expect you to do it better every time. And then that's really what it's all about. And so if you're sitting on the sidelines, just get started. That's the way you're going to learn. Man, that's amazing advice. Kent Ritter, thank you so much for being on the show, my friend. I look forward to seeing you soon. Elevate Nation, what a phenomenal episode with Kent Ritter. I don't know about you, but I learned a lot. I hope you learned a lot. I learned a lot, not only about thinking, about exploring opportunities, about evaluating potential futures, and um, really understanding and thinking again about the way that we believe certain things to be and how we see certain things and, and how that relates to success in real estate. I think it's so valuable for us to, to understand this vehicle intimately and continue to expand that understanding, continue to evolve and, and challenge ourselves to learn more. Because if real estate is going to be a vehicle that serves greater outcomes that we want in our life, we have to continue to learn whether you're active or passive as a real estate investor, entrepreneur, it's just so valuable for us to get back to the center and learn that learning is the center of our success. And it's also the center of fulfillment in, in our life. And so I just want to thank you so much for being here. I want to thank you so much for listening to Elevate Podcast. I want to encourage you to re-listen to this show and identify what are your top one, two, or three key distinctions or takeaways from this episode Repetition, of course, is the mother of all skills. So listening again, you're going to learn something new. And of course, just discuss this and share this with someone else. Share this with a friend and discuss with them what you learned from this episode. Was it something to do with the mechanics of real estate or making assumptions on, on certain deals and growing your business and understanding what separates success from failure? I mean, there's so many different things that you could have learned from this episode, but the most important thing is to discuss that and expand your learning through those discussions. And of course, by far, the most important thing to do is to take action. So I want to challenge you to take massive action. Until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.